Good evening. evening. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Hey, you guys sound great and look great as well. My name is Ty. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We've got the kids in the room with us tonight. Can I hear the kids? Give me a little whoop whoop. Hey, did you guys know I have a special gift for you tonight? I'm going to preach a shorter sermon. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Hey, and also, God's got a gift for you tonight as well. You know what it is? 65 degrees and not living in the Midwest or South, am I right? (laughs) Man, it is brutal out there. Anyway, hey, uh, so glad that you guys are joining us uh, tonight for our Christmas Eve gathering. Uh, Here's what I know. We are all waiting for something. Right now, where you sit, no matter if you're young or you're advanced in years, as the Bible says, you are all waiting for something. Maybe you're waiting for the party to start tonight after our gathering. Maybe you're waiting for Christmas morning. That way you can rip open some gifts. Maybe you're waiting for your family that's in from out of town to go home. It's not not your family. It's somebody else's family. Maybe you're waiting for a package to arrive from Amazon. Maybe you're like Clark Griswold to where you're waiting for your bonus check-in to pay for the pool, hoping it's not a jelly of the month club. Uh, Maybe you're waiting for the New Year's to come because you have wrecked this year and you're ready for a fresh start. We're all waiting for something. Uh, Not even during the Christmas season. I would even argue as human beings, we're always waiting for something. When you're young, you're waiting for summertime. You're waiting for a new grade, uh, to be in a new grade. You're waiting when you're 15 years old to turn uh, 15 and a half or 16. That way you can get your what? driver's license. You're waiting to become an adult. You want to be 18. That way you can go to the club. And what club am I talking about? I'm talking about Sam's Club, right? (laughs) You're always waiting for something, waiting for maybe to get a significant other, waiting to get your degree finished, waiting to get your career started, waiting to change your habit, waiting to get your own place, waiting for some kind of improvement, waiting for the world to change. You're always waiting for something. That's what we do as human beings. We're always waiting for something. And that's just not a modern situation that we have. Always, for all time, people have been waiting. And when we look back to the story of Christmas 2,000 years ago, we see people waiting just like us. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for a promise. They're waiting for the promised one. Well, today we are concluding our Advent series we've called Prepare the Way. And over the past few weeks, we've been going through Luke uh, chapter 1, and tonight will be a little bit in Luke chapter 2. And if you missed any of that, you can go back to our website or YouTube and check that out. But just to kind of give you a brief synopsis, God sends an angel to, to uh, visit a virgin by the name of Mary. She is betrothed, which is like engagement plus, to a guy by the name of Joseph, and basically tells her, you are going to give birth miraculously to the Savior of the world. Mind you that Mary and Joseph are teenagers. No big deal, am I right? huge deal that God is going to come. God is going to take on a body. It's what we call the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. But what's the point of Christmas? What's all the fuss when it comes to Christmas? Just another consumeristic holiday so we can just buy a bunch of stuff for the people we love around us. Why Christmas? Well, in my opinion, the second chapter of the book of Luke does the best at describing the meaning of Christmas. It's to the point, and I will get to the point. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to Luke chapter 2. Luke's in your New Testament, Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we will put it on the screen for you. Uh, we have free Bibles laying around here. Please take one there in English and Spanish. Uh, the author of the book of Luke is, guess who? Luke. Look at you, Bible scholars out there. It is Luke 
Luke was a historian, also uh, medically trained, so he's somewhat of a doctor. He wrote this about 2,000 years ago. Uh, he was hired by a guy by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus was a well-known guy at the time period. He heard about Jesus living, dying, and resurrecting. And so he uh, knew about Luke being a historian and a pretty smart guy. He said, hey, I'm going to pay you a large sum of money to go investigate this Jesus, and that way you can write about it and tell me more about it. And so that's what we have right here. And in Luke chapter 2, we find out about the birth of Jesus, God coming to us. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Are you there? Are you at least ready, willing, and able? All right, let's go. Verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinerus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, notice just very briefly uh, in this first line here, it doesn't start off with once upon a time. You know why? Because it's not a fairy tale. It's what we just read there is historically true. These are real people. Caesar Augustus and Quinerus are real people anchored in real time. If you know a little bit about Roman history, Caesar Augustus was born uh, Gaius Octavius. Uh, he's probably really well known. He was the, um, he, his adopted father was Julius Caesar. You probably have heard of him as well. Well, anyway, they gave him the name of Augustus because Augustus meant the, the holy one or the revered one. The word Augustus in Greek culture was, uh, was only for the gods. And so when you would think of Caesar Augustus, you would think of him like a god because he was a man who wanted to become a, a, a god. And he, he was known as, in that time period, as the savior. And some people would even say he was the savior of the world. Interesting that Luke uh, puts his name down here. Why is that? Because we see with Caesar Augustus, he is man trying to become God. But when we see Jesus, we see that he is God who became man. I, I love like he does that as well. And so um, uh, he's basically made this law to where all people must register, register themselves like a census and they must go to their hometown. Why? Well, for two reasons, taxes and military. Uh, they need an account of all the people to make sure they're taking enough taxes. That sounds familiar. Am I right? And they wanted to know who all the young men were. That way, if there was ever a battle or some type of war, they would enlist them in the military as well. So these are real people, real events, and a real history. Got it? Okay, verse 4. And Joseph, now Joseph is the one betrothed to Mary, also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And so the census is coming down. Uh, Joseph is in the family line of David. You guys know who David is. Maybe you're not a church person, Bible person. I'll, I'll let you know. You probably heard the story if you watch enough sports. Uh, when there's an underdog, they'll say, this is a real David and Goliath situation. You remember that? You heard of that? Well, he's a, a person in the Old Testament, and he was promised that someone from his line will sit on the throne forever. And so he is from the line of David. David's from Bethlehem. And so he must go to Bethlehem to be registered and to be, uh, you know, legal beagle under the law. Make sense? Uh, this is an issue. You know why? Because Mary is about to pop. She is pregnant, like super pregnant. And the problem is where he is at and where he is going is about 100 miles. Now, uh, believe it or not, I personally have never been pregnant, uh, but that sounds like a very arduous trip, right? What's the last thing you want to do when you're uh, like really fully pregnant? Uh, go on a long walk or ride a donkey side saddle for over 100 miles, right? And so that's what they have to do in order uh, to obey what the law is saying. But, but there's a reason behind the scenes why as well. 
This is God sovereignly moving them to Bethlehem. Why? We read it earlier on the screen from Micah chapter 5 in the Old Testament. It says that Jesus, the Savior, the promised one, will be born in Bethlehem. So what does this tell us? How does this inform us about God? God will use all sorts of things to get us to get you where he wants to get you. And tonight that may be here. And maybe God is using a, a, a dinner, a meal, or some kind of prize at the end of the thing, but he wants you to be here and to hear this message. Let me keep going in verse six. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So like I said, she's about to pop. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is what theologians call the incarnation of God. Um, I I like Mexican food, and on the Mexican menu, there's uh, what's called carne asada. You've probably heard of carne asada, am I right? Uh, What does carne mean? Meat. And so when you hear the word incarnation, it means uh, in the flesh or in the meat. So God came in the flesh, in the meat. He took on a body. And so Jesus, he comes as the promised one from long ago, and he comes as a baby, what is like the weakest thing ever? A baby. Like how vulnerable is that? And think about it. This is the God who created all things with his, with his, his voice, with just a word. And he can't even get like a room in the inn. He can't even like get a hotel room. And so it says here that basically he was born, uh, Jesus was born somewhat in a barn in a stable. Maybe it was the side of a hill in a cave. But uh, it says right here in a manger. And we think, oh, manger, cute. No, it's a feeding trough. You ever been on a farm? You ever been around animals? It's gross. And this is where our Savior was born. And so this is what Christmas means. Christmas is somewhat when the man upstairs comes downstairs. That's what we see right here. Now, most of us know this story, but what's the whole point? What's the point of uh, of Christmas? Well, Luke is getting ready to transition the story. As a good investigator, he's going to give us some clues into the reason for Christmas. Verse 8. So there's something else going on. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So now he introduced us to some new characters in the story. They are shepherds. Uh, What are the shepherds' names? We don't know. We have no idea. The Bible does not say. They're just the middle of the night. They're out watching their sheep. It's not glamorous work. As a matter of fact, it's really surprising that Dr. Luke even mentions them. Why? Because shepherds at that time had a bad reputation. They were basically the outcast of society, undesirable, unreliable. They couldn't even give testimony in the court of law. They were despised people. I don't know. People just didn't like shepherds back then. Maybe they got around them. They smelled like sheep. Have you ever smelled a sheep before? Uh, they've got those little berries on them. You ever seen it? it comes from a dingle tree. Anyway, it's really, they smell. Some of you are like, I'm going to research that. Don't. Uh, but anyway, even the religious people of the time would really, really look down upon them. Why? Uh, because uh, they would be at work and they couldn't keep the ceremonial laws. They basically, let me kind of break it down to you. They didn't have the schedule that allowed them to go to church. Uh, and so they were, they were deemed as unclean. They were not church goers. They were not religious to say. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, did you hear that? 
the angel of the Lord of the Lord appeared to them. God intentionally sends angels to these undesirable people. These are the lowest of low people, the outcasts at the time, the non-church goers. They are rough. They are weird. I mean, just think about it in modern terms. Uh, they're not. Uh, they're, they aren't Duttons living in the big house. They're out in the bunkhouse kind of deal. And some of you, maybe you grew up in church and like you were in a church play or something like that. And you were like, man, I got this, this really star role. I was a shepherd. And I'm like, mm, no, you just got a role that no one else wanted right there. And so that, that's kind of the angel right here. No one visits, uh, or the shepherds, no one visits the shepherds. And yet the angels, they go to them. This, this should inform us. This should tell us who God is for. Verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not. Could you imagine being shepherds out there in the middle of the night? It's super dark and all of a sudden an angel appears and the angel's like, calm down. It's going to be okay. And it says, there's good news for you. The word good news means gospel. There is gospel and it's great joy. And this good news is for who? Who does it say in the text right there at the, the last three words? Who does that include? Does that include you as well? Well, of course it does. It includes all of us. That means this, that God is for you. Now, some of you will bristle against that. No, no, no. God's not for me. I don't have my act together. I'm not a religious person. I'm not a churchgoer or anything like that. What about the shepherds? God was for them. Can God not be for you as well? God is for you. The Bible says that there's good news for you, that God is for you. Now, what is the good news? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now it says, city of David in Bethlehem. Who was just born in Bethlehem? You, uh, so anytime at Grace Point Church, when I or one of the preachers up here ask you a question, we say, two plus two, your answer is Jesus. Okay, cool, cool. Okay, <laughs> the city of David is Bethlehem. Who was just born previously in Bethlehem? We just read about Jesus. Jesus. So you have to connect the text together. Good news is Jesus. Great joy comes from Jesus, and Jesus is for all people, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. Just in case you miss it, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So he said, hey, if you want proof, go see. And so they do, verse 13. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what's the word? Peace. Peace among those whom <clears throat> he is pleased. All of a sudden, a, a multitude of angels. I mean, can you kind of picture that in your mind's eye? It's dark out there, one angel, glory kind of sh shining around it. And all of a sudden, a multitude, thousands, millions, billions, we don't know. I mean, what a, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. And they were singing, peace among those whom he is pleased. And so Jesus, he comes and he brings something with him. He brings peace. But how and to whom? Let's see how this scene ends. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child and all who heard it, wondering at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, and as has been told them. I love, like, there's two different responses there. Mary gets responses. She's pretty contemplative. She's kind of internalizing it. She's thinking through it. Not the shepherds. They're very active. What are they doing after they see and verify this good news from the angel? They, they're singing and praising God and have all this joy because they, they know of this 
good news. And this is the Christmas story. We can finalize it now and say, Jesus is the reason for the season. So let's just all pray, go home, and eat some friggin' pud figgy pudding, right? <laughs> well, you probably know the story, don't you? I mean, at home, you probably have a nativity scene maybe out in your yard, or you're watching some movies that have a nativity scene in as well. But this can be one of those sections of Scripture that we're so familiar with that we're actually not familiar with it at all. And so why all this fuss over Jesus? Why do we make such a big deal 2,000 years later about Jesus? It's all in verse 11, and perhaps we sped through it. So let's rewind and go back to verse 11. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And right within this little verse right here comes three titles. And this is the only place in the Gospels. And when I say Gospels like that, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, these three titles, the only place it's all used together in one sentence. And yet these three titles of Jesus give us the reason for Jesus and Christmas. It gives us everything right here. So what I want to do is quickly, I want to mention all three of them. Two, I'll kind of talk about quickly, but one I'm really going to camp out in. And then we'll be out of here and you can go do your thing. Sound good? Number one, Jesus is Savior. I mean, it's in his name. His name is, means that God will remove the sins of the world, or God takes away sins, that he is the one who saves us. He's the only one who can save us. We cannot save ourselves. Why? In order to be saved, someone must come who is fully God, fully man, and fully perfect. Are you perfect? Some of you are like, yeah, well, there's your first lie ever. So no, you cannot. But what is he going to save us from? Well, I would say a lot of things. Number one, ourselves. We need to be saved from ourselves. Am I right? We need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from eternal separation from God as well and the penalty of our sin as well. And it says right here that everyone needs to be saved. How do I know that? He said this good news is for who? All the people. So number one, he's the Savior. Number two, this is the one I'm going to camp out on for a while because this one I think makes a big deal tonight. Jesus is Christ. The text says that he is Christ. Now, what's coming next has the potential to change everything. Nothing may be the same after I get ready to tell you what this Christ means. Once you come and see what I'm ready, getting ready to tell you, once you own this for yourself, once you believe this for yourself, it begins to affect everything in your life. It will affect the way you view yourself. It will affect the way you view life. It will affect the way you view God. It will mess with your relationships. It will mess with your work. It will mess with your suffering and how you suffer. It will affect everything. Are you ready? Luke is saying that Jesus is the Christ. Now, sometimes when we hear Jesus Christ, we think Christ is his last name. Like if Jesus had a house and there's a mailbox out front, it just says the Christ on there. That's not it. Uh, Christ means that he, it's like a title, like he is the CEO, like chief executive officer, not uh, Christmas and Easter only. <laughs> Score one for me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Or PhD, or maybe some of you are in the military, and that means like Master Sergeant, Major General, whatever that is right there. He is the Christ. But what does the Christ mean? Well, I think the Bible will help us if we move around in it a little bit here. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus starting to assemble his team. Now, as I say, assemble your team. Don't think like Avengers. Uh, they were quite not quite the Avenger status right there. And so he gets his disciples ready, uh, and there's this interaction that happens before they ever meet Jesus. It's in John 1, verse 40. It says this. These are his disciples talking. 
One of the two heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He was first found with his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the, what's the word? Messiah. Messiah. Now, John put in parentheses, this is not me, he put in there, which means Christ. So Christ means Messiah. Now we're getting somewhere. Messiah connects us to the Old Testament. The Bible has two Testaments, the Old and the New. Uh, In the text, you can see right here that they had never met uh, Jesus yet, but you can have this sense of that they were waiting for something. The disciples were waiting for something. What were they waiting for? The Messiah. How? Who? Like, what's going on here? Well, the Old Testament focused on this one called the Messiah, whom God would send. And for thousands of years, they've been hearing Messiah this and Messiah that, Messiah, 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 this promised Messiah that will come. And here's how. God made so many promises in the Old Testament to the people and to the world and to history. He made so many promises. He said, all these promises are going to come true in this one person, the Messiah. Uh, Let let me give you a couple instances. Um, If you go all the way back to the beginning, and when I say beginning, I mean Genesis, which is the the beginning. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. He created everything you see. It's wonderful. And he created male and female. Uh, He created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were perfect. had a perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with God, and perfect relationship with the world around them. And everything was good, right? And then like a snake kind of came in, it was uh, Satan in disguise, and tempted them uh, to go against what God said. God said, hey, you can eat of anything you want, just not the one tree, right? And so what'd they do? They ate of the one tree. And sometimes we're like, I can't believe they did that. We do it too. It's like if someone just put a button under your chair and be like, hey, don't push that. You'd be like, okay. You would. Uh, Anyway, and uh, and so they sinned against God. They rebelled against God, and this is bad. And God could have been right and good and perfect just to zap them, remove them, smite, smote, however you want to say it, and just they'd be done. But God is good, good and gracious and kind, and so he made a way for them to be saved. He gives them a promise, and we see this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this is the first promise of the Messiah, he shall bruise your head, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's basically saying this snakehead crusher, the Messiah, is coming to end all evil. Do you hear that promise? It's a promise. If you fast forward a little bit, uh, you get into the prophet by the name of Isaiah. We find out in Isaiah that the Messiah is the only one who can heal the sin-sick world, including us. You see Isaiah 53, 5. But he, this is the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. What does that remind you of? The cross, Easter. Actually, Good Friday. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And if you keep looking throughout the Old Testament, you see all these promises that God is going to right the world, and God is going to right you, and everything is going to be good, right, and perfect, but it's all going to come through this one. And so the people who knew the promise of God for centuries were waiting for the one, the Messiah, to come and start fulfilling the promises. That's what the angels are announcing to the shepherds there and the world and us is that Jesus is the promise keeper. All of God's promises come true in him. And when we trust him, we get this gift right now. And it's in John 20, verse 31. Here it comes. Get ready. John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the what? The Christ, the Messiah, the promise keeper, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Boom, life change. Crickets, right? Wait, you, didn't, you just, didn't you just hear that Jesus is the Christ? Jesus is the, 
Messiah? See, what just happened is this. You just got some Christmas information. You probably already had this Christmas information. And information alone is not really enough to change our lives. Maybe it helps us out a little bit, but it really doesn't change our life. Now, what we need to do is we need to take this information and connect it to our lives. And when we take the information of God and connect it in our lives and we believe, that's where transformation truly comes from. See, Jesus comes to people who are waiting. And I told us all at the beginning that each and every one of us are waiting. The shepherds were waiting, the disciples were waiting, and we are waiting as well. Whether you know it or not, we're all waiting for something. Probably where you sit right now, you're waiting for a season to pass. You're waiting for school to be over. You're waiting for some test result to come back. You're waiting for someone. You're waiting for your job to give you more information to see if you have a job again. You're waiting to get married. You're waiting for your marriage to get better. It needs some healing in it. You're waiting for kids. You're waiting for loneliness, depression to pass, or at least to get better. You're waiting for the news to change because the news is terrible. You're waiting. And waiting for these things is good, It's great. We wait for all these types of things, but we can't build our life upon those things when they happen, when we don't wait any longer on them. We can't allow the things we wait on to give us life ultimately. Why? They can't bear the weight of our existence. If you're solely waiting for your spouse, what happens if they leave or, God forbid, they die? If you're waiting for your family, what happens when your kids grow up and move out? Because that's what they're supposed to do. Am I right? That's right. If you live for happiness or pleasure, what happens when you're not happy? Because listen to me, there will be seasons in life you're not happy. If you're living for pleasure, what happens when your life is not that pleasurable? If you live for beauty, what happens when you get old? I don't know. If you live for power, what happens when someone else has more power or your power is taken away? If you live For comfort, what happens when someone calls you and asks you to help them move, which is the worst? (laughs) We have all those waitings in our life. What are we really waiting for? Listen to me. No matter if you're a believer or not, no matter if you would say, I'm a Christian or I'm not a Christian, we're all waiting on this one thing. And so get ready to hear what I'm getting ready to tell you. At the heart of all of our waiting life, it boils down, it reduces down to this one thing that we're all waiting for. You know what it is? We're all waiting for, whether you can name it or not, whether you're a church person or not, we're all waiting for the promises of God. That's what we're all waiting for. And the Messiah is the only one who can fulfill the promises of God. You want the world to be perfect. You want every situation in your life to be perfect. That's what the Messiah is coming to do. We are waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. We see that in the first advent when Jesus came. He promised us he will come back the second time and he will perfect everything. Think about what that looks like. No more letdowns. No more breakups. No more sin. No more temptation to sin. No more corruption, systemic racism. No more feelings of abandonment or loneliness or depression or communication breakdown in marriages. No more government shenanigans. No more Costco gas lines. No more Nickelback and no more Fast and Furious movies. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Jesus is the only one that could fix all that. He's the only one. His rule and reign is people. See, everything that we have a longing for, everything we have a desire for, finds its fulfillment 
ultimately in Jesus. Marriage points to Jesus. Money and all that it provides points to Jesus. Parenting points to Jesus. Your work points to Jesus. Your health points to Jesus. Your balanced schedules point to Jesus. Comfort points to Jesus. And Christmas points to Jesus. So all the things that we want may be good, and all the things that we're waiting for may be good, but the question is, are they God? We're waiting for God. See, you and I are broken, and so is the world. Jesus is the only one that can and will, and he promised to fix us. See, that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is God, and only God can fulfill the promises of God, and only God has the power to do that, and only God can come and be perfect and sacrifice and payment for the sins of the world. And Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one of God who will come and fulfill all the promises of God. Jesus is the Christ. Number three, lastly, Jesus is Lord. Look back at the text. It says in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Lord just means this. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the leader. He is God. My question for you is this. Is he Lord of your life? Some of you say, well, that's a little too far for me, buddy. I think Jesus is a good teacher and all that, but Lord? Nah, I don't know about that. There's this uh, author, he died many years ago. His name was C.S. Lewis. Wrote a lot of stuff. There's movies about it. Uh, he, He said this one time. He said the man who, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his, his being a great human teacher he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's what Christmas is all about, is Jesus being supreme, being Lord and leader of our lives. Why? Because he is Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God, who will come and fulfill all the promises of God. And the payoff for trusting Jesus is what? It's the song the angels sung, peace. Jesus will give you peace. Now, some of you hear that like, well, are you promising me that Jesus will give me peace and my life will be perfect right now? And the answer is no. Peace does not mean the absence of conflict and suffering. Peace, what Jesus is talking about is this, that, that Jesus will be with you, Emmanuel, God with us, in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our conflicts. That's the peace he will provide. See, this Christmas, Jesus doesn't want something from you. He just wants you. If you're here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus, you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, why not tonight? Take the greatest gift you can ever give, and that would be Jesus. You can trust him. If you want to talk to someone, please talk to us. There'll be some of us standing out at prayer point. You see the cross out there, or you can scan a QR code, or just just let someone know, like, hey, I I want to trust Jesus. But for some of you, I would say this. You need to hear more. I want to give you a challenge. Maybe you're not a churchgoer or you used to be a churchgoer and you've kind of fallen out of that. Here's my challenge to you. Why not start the new year outright? We're starting a brand new seven-week series in January called Everyday Missionaries. And you're going to find out about the mission of God, the purpose of life. And I would just uh, encourage you and challenge you, why not commit to that uh, at the beginning of the year? I just want you to know that Jesus is for you and there's so much to learn about him. And I promise you, I promise you, he can change everything in your 
life. Now hear the words of Jesus. John 8, 12 says this. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The lighting of the candle dramatically depicts the growing expectation we have for the coming of Christ, who is the light of the world. For those of you who are not churchgoers, you would say, hey, I'm not a Christian, I'm just not my thing. I hope this light is a spark for you. It's a glimmer of hope for you. Let this be a light for you to continue to seek the truth of Jesus as the light in your life. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, like he said, he is the light of the world. And his light shines brighter through his people, the church. May we be a people who are a light, a city on the hill. Don't shine just so other people can see you. No, we shine together so that other people can see Jesus through us. We light these candles as a sign of the coming of the light of Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, as glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Matthew 4, 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the regions in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. May we walk in the light of our Lord Jesus.